Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. I'm releasing this episode on MLB's opening day, the best day of the year. I'll be going to Kauffman Stadium this afternoon to watch the Royals take on the Guardians. I've been very fortunate to go to several opening days, and I'm excited to continue the tradition this year with my dad and brother. That's why I was so excited to speak with Kurt Nelson, director of the Royals Hall of Fame at Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri. You'll hear Kurt share some incredible stories about his journey to the Royals, putting together the Hall of Fame, and how the Royals and their Hall of Famers impact KC on the field and off. For my overtime segment this week, I'll be exploring the life of Ewing Kaufman, the longtime Royals owner and namesake of Kaufman Stadium. Be sure to stay tuned after our interview for some info on the visionary who brought a Major League Baseball team to KC in the late 60s and quickly built it into a winner. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kurt. Well, today on Hallowed Ground, I'm talking with Kurt Nelson, director of the Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame in Kansas City, Missouri. Kurt, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I just wanted to start off by talking about your background. I think it's really interesting how like in your bio on the Royals website, it talks about how you started as a, a kind of a seasonal staff member and then worked in marketing and then kind of worked your way up to kind of creating the Royals Hall of Fame as a group effort and then now as the director. So kind of walk us through kind of that process over the last couple of decades. Yeah, well, I came to the Royals my first year working. I always say it's a trick question. People say, how long have you been with the Royals? And I, my standard line is that the Royals were technically born in January of 1968 when Mr. and Mrs. K were awarded the franchise. And uh, I was born in February of 1968. So this okay. if, if people ask how old the Royals are, I say, this is how old the Royals are. The, the Royals are usually in better shape than me. Um, but I started to work for the Royals in 1999 was when I, I came to start with the Royals. And I really started in what we called at the time a seasonal position. Uh, you could basically say it was more like internship. So it basically would run sort of like an internship because they were they were paid, but they were sort of minimum wage and they were limited hours And at that time. And, uh, and they only were supposed to run from like March to September. So it was more like an internship. And I was a little bit older. I was had already been through grad school and had started sort of mm-hmm. working in the workaday world. And so I was 30 years old when I did that. So I was older than my my intern or seasonal peers. So I used to call myself the 30 year old intern. But I always wanted to work for the Royals. So if you go back and if you could meet the 12 year old me and said, what do you want to do f- when you grow up, I probably would have said I wanted to work for the Royals. So I gave myself a target about that big. And somehow with the help of a lot of people, I was able to somehow hit it. But uh, so the purpose when I was in school was to be involved in sports. I knew I was never going to play sports at any sort of level. I barely played youth sports for that matter. My older brother was a very good athlete. My younger brother was a decent athlete and primarily focused on baseball, which he still is to this day. He's a baseball coach at uh, Rockhurst University. So we both have, two of us have made a career out of baseball. So my whole undergrad at the University of Oklahoma and grad school at the University of Missouri was done with the idea of getting involved in sports, preferably uh, baseball, but I was ready to do collegiate sports. I was ready to do any, you know, any professional sport that would have me with the idea that maybe the someday that would lead me back to maybe getting a chance with the Royals. But fortunate enough, it's the Royals are the only thing I've ever known uh, as far as working because I did get that. 
I was doing something else outside of sports for a couple of years in the interim with that idea, you know, well, I'll get a job and I'll look for a job while I have a job. And then all of a sudden you're doing that job and you're about three years, four years into that. And you're like, wait a minute, I was going to look for a job while I was doing this. And so I quit my job and I moved to Kansas City with the idea of, well, I can get a job similar to that, knock on wood. And I can at least be in a place that I want to be. Right. So I, I came back to Kansas City. This is long winded, I know. But so I grew up in Oklahoma and Tulsa, but my parents were both from Kansas City. So Kansas City was always sort of like a second home anyway, even though I never lived here until 1998. But it felt like home anyway, because I'd spent so much time here. And so I came back here and I started to apply and, you know, the seasonal positions with the Royals at the beginning of the 99 season were out there. And I, I sent in my resume. I did not know the people that were in, in the, the two departments that I was sort of jockeying for a position in was group sales and marketing. And there was one job that it was, it was the first job I ever had here. I'd ended up getting it. It was the longest title I ever had. It was pregame coordinator and group sales assistant. And uh, that was the seasonal job. And I did not know the director of group sales or the director of marketing, but I knew who they were. I did not know them, but I knew who they were. And back in those days, it seems like a stone age now. It's a, you would fax your resume and stuff to them. And I remember I, I sent them on a Friday night. I sent them because I, I was eternally looking for jobs once I got to Kansas City and I would do this sort of dreaming things and I would see the seasonal jobs and I'd like, well, I'll give it a shot. This will be, this will be, this would be my in if I would could get it. So I sent it directly to them and to, uh, to my delight, I got a call back. I think it, I think I did that on like a Thursday afternoon and they called me Friday and said, can you come by for an interview on Monday? And that was the most anxious weekend. So I came in and I, I sort of prepared myself. It's like, I got to go in and explain, you know, it's like, yes, I have two grad school degrees. And yes, I'm 30 years old. It's like, they always say, hang a lantern on your, on your problems or whatever, or, or what, what might be perceived as the drawbacks of hiring you. And I convinced them that I really wanted this job. And, uh, and they hired me. So that's sort of where it started. And, and I had been sort of, that's what school was about primarily was the idea that business was going to be the, the way I was going to get involved in sports and marketing would probably be the best way for me to do that. So that's, that's what I did sort of go to school to, to be ready to do. And it did have sort of a marketing function with it. It was the, the pregame coordinator part of it was, was basically a, second that we had a marketing intern, but the, that job sort of had a second mar secondary marketing influence. And the fact that it's exactly what it sounds like. I scheduled and, and planned for first pitches and national anthems and all that sort of stuff. So that was, that was what I did. And as I said, it was sort of a limited job and I got it right at, right before opening day in 99. And we were really busy and those jobs were supposed to be limited to 30 hours a week. But the first couple of weeks I was working here, we were hitting 40 hours because it was opening day was coming up and it was all hands on deck. We got a couple of weeks past opening day and, uh, 
and the director of group sales and director of marketing at the time, God bless them, they both hired me. They said, well, now, now we're going to have to pull those hours back and, and really stay under that 30 mark. And my sort of my big break in that sense was they had a full-time assistant that within 24 hours of them, 24, 48 hours of them telling me that we're, they were going to have to pull my hours back, she had taken a job somewhere else here in Kansas City and that her position sort of sort of opened up. She wasn't here. And so I came in one morning and they said, here, you sit here now. And that's basically when I became sort of full time. I became sort of a full time assistant to them. They sort of reformulated that job. And I became full time, not officially until after that season, but pretty much in the beginning of May, I was working full time. And that sort of grew into being assistant, both in group sales and marketing. And that quickly grew into being uh, the coordinator of marketing. And then I sort of worked my way up over there over the course of the next nine, nine years or so. I went from, you know, that seasonal person to coordinator of marketing, manager marketing to director of marketing. And that's when I, what I was doing when uh, the renovations came about. So now we're in the, the time frame of about 2006, 2007, 2008. And when the renovations of Kauffman Stadium came about, the Royals Hall of Fame had existed since 1986, the first two inductees, Amos Otis and Steve Busby. And there had always been sort of a concourse display outside in the ballpark in several different incarnations. But there was never a physical place that was the Royals Hall of Fame Really, I mean, there was no in, interior space, but there was going to be inside of any renovation. And when the renovation finally passed and it was actually going to happen, the club knew that that was going to happen. And that's when ownership came to me and said, you know, we think that you would be the best in this role, which I was thrilled by. It was one of those weird things. It's like you, you had the job you always wanted as oh, director of marketing for the Royals and moving up in that realm. And this Royals Hall of Fame thing didn't exist. So it wasn't something you were shooting for because it didn't exist. But I always got to be known as the guy that knew arcane things about Royals history, right? It's like people would say, ask questions and they'd go, I don't know, go ask Kurt, maybe he'll know. And so that's how the sort of when the Royals Hall of Fame came about, they were like, well, he seems to be the guy here on the team that revels in knowing all this good and sometimes arcane and stupid stuff that maybe he would be the right person in that role. So that's and so they asked me to do it. And of course, I agreed to do it because one, they wanted me to do it. And two, it did sort of sound like something that sort of fit and. Because, you know, I was sort of a Royals geek to begin with. So and I was being a Royals geek by being a director of marketing. But this was going to be even a more direct sort of mainlining Royals geekdom and uh, doing Royals Hall of Fame stuff and sort of being the steward of Royals history. And, and people sort of look to me to, to know more about Royals history. And I love learning more about it because I know a lot of it, but I always like to, to learn more. I was call it going down the rabbit hole because eventually you'll find something and it's like, you know, I think that's something like that happened before. And you start looking it up and it's like, okay, yeah, sort of happened before. Now I'm going to try to find contemporaneous news stories or if somebody, you know, 
quotes from Amos Otis when he did that. Or, and it's, it's fun to make those sorts of connections and everything. And so that's primarily what I do. And, and then support everybody else in the organization when they have some sort of history function. You know, it's, it's down to things like uniforms and when, how did we change uniforms and how did the uniform change? And we've been recently working on, this has always been sort of a bugaboo for me because it's, it's, I'm a huge person that's into our marks and our logo and all that sort of is vitally important as a marketing person that still courses that still courses through my veins. I think all those elements are so important, but as the Royals geek in me, I love them and I want them to be used appropriately and, and all that sort of thing. And there's always been this case where the, our original uniforms in the original block Kansas city on our, the uniforms that we started wearing in 72, or I guess it was 71. And then the, the Kansas City script that we wore on our road uniforms in um, 69 and 70 are, if you go to like Majestic's Cooperstown collection and all those sorts of things, they're wrong. They look right, but they're ever so slightly wrong. And, and it's always bothered me. And I've been working with our graphic design team. It's like, you know that the 69 and 70 Kansas City script that we wore on that, it's close, but it's wrong because what Major League Baseball has is it's much more arched. And I said, ours had a tiny arch. It didn't, it wasn't like this. It was like this. And so I was able to get a 1969-70 uniform and I said, let's measure this and do it right and send it back to them and say, this needs to be corrected. So it's down to geeky stuff like that. Whereas some people in the building will say, only Kurt would have noticed something as ridiculous as that. My brother does that to me all the time. He'll pick up something at a, at a store or whatever, and he goes, what's wrong with this logo? And I'll say, well, it still has the black drop shadow, which I never liked to begin with, and, and it's wrong, and he'll just laugh at me. <laughs> That's right. I embrace it now. I always tell people, you know, it's like, there's that cliche is you don't, you, you, you say, I don't want to be that guy and say this, but I am that guy. So I'm going to say that. And so I just embrace it now. You have to, I think that's a, a fun part of working in a museum and kind of that world is like discovering those corrections or those like historical nuggets that nobody else really knows or cares about, but that matters. And people see the uniforms and they see the logos and it's important to be accurate too. And that's what I like about going to Royals games myself. Like I have growing up, you've started to do like this day in Royals history during the pregame show. And I think that's really cool. And that's probably where those rabbit holes happen is like what happened on June 19th, 1981 or whatever. And I think some of those stories are cool. So can you kind of talk about putting that together and how fun that maybe is for you? It is one of my great joys to be able to do that because I find all these and we sort of branched out a little bit because inside the Royals Hall of Fame, we also try to, uh, as I always say, that we don't want to act like baseball was invented in 1969 or Kansas City baseball was invented in 1969. We're only the we're the inheritors of this incredibly rich and diverse and historically important Kansas City baseball tradition that goes all the way back to 1884 and in amateur baseball, even a little bit before that. 
it's a fact, but it's, uh, but I always point out that Kansas city had major league baseball before we even had decided that our place, our home was called Kansas city officially. That's how far back it goes. So I sort of started that as this Dayton Royals history, and it sort of branched out to try to find other interesting aspects of history and baseball and try to find some sort of Kansas city angle that you can weave into it, especially a Royals angle if you can. But it started as the state and Royals history. And it's something that I'd always, I'd sort of been working on that for years, mm -hmm. even when I was in marketing, because it'd be like trivia questions. People would want to know, oh, I need, I'm, we, we've got a contest and we need trivia questions. And, and I would always try to build them off Royals history. And people would tell me they were too hard because the, most of my questions would go back into the early days or whatever. And it's like, I viewed them as sort of easy questions. And some people it's like, nobody knows that. Yeah. And then I started to do, cause I wanted to do more storytelling. So that led me to start my, this Excel spreadsheet, which I still have that. And it's, it's like my prized possession. I, it's, I'm always worried that I always talk to it. It's like, that thing's backed up, isn't it? It's like, if I, even if I screwed it up, it's like, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> It's, you know, it's got over, I don't know, probably close to 3000 entries now. And it's just trying to go back. And every time I find something that I find interesting uh, from Royals history or some sort of game in which something odd happened or a first time this happened or all those sorts of things and write them up. And it goes to trying to back up all the stuff that's come before. And it's also trying to pick things that happen in uh, in current day games every single time. So I try to pay attention to something that something odd or sometimes they're not records or anything. Uh, I call them oddities. So it's just what might be something that's that's different that happened in that game and to try to put it down so I can sort of remember that it happened and uh, and come across it every year and then i try to to keep some of that stuff fresh in mind i always try to put a this date and this is where this date and royals history definitely still is i try to do some sort of condensed version of that for radio and television which i always give to the broadcasters and most of the time they don't use it some of them are more interested in it than others i mean denny lived a lot of it so sometimes he doesn't it doesn't much as much register. He was there. Them. Yeah. He's like, yeah. And then Ryan and Steve Fiziox, uh will really sort of delve into that stuff. And, and Rex likes stuff that's sort of tied into the era in which he was playing. So he'll, Oh yeah. So I've, I've played with that guy or whatever, but it's fun to be able to do that. And it's gone all the way from having a file that I try to keep up with. And this, this is for, for use for other people in the building. They use this. I think the social media team uses it a lot and I use it for Royals hall of fame purposes, but it's a sort of a simple Excel sheet that has every player that's ever played for the Kansas city Royals. Even if they appeared for one inning, if they appeared in a major league game, they're on that list. And it includes their birth date, the day that they, made their Royals debut the day that they made their major league debut. Cause some of that's not the same because it's people that come from the outside the day they played their last game for the Royals and the day they played their last game in major league baseball. And also, unfortunately, because we're 50 plus years on for those that have passed away for us to be able to recognize and, and know 
the when some of the, these guys have passed away and uh, and remember them in in proper context for for certain things. So so that's kind of fun for me too, is to be able to continue. And I always always try to include that in those notes that I give to the the broadcasters each time. I try to condense it down because some dates have like, how do you pick two things? Because there's some dates that have 10 things that are, at least I find fascinating. And uh, Ryan always pokes at me sometimes. He goes, I can't read 10 things, pick two. Don't give me a book. But it used to be that I would print them out and hand them to them. But the pandemic started and I didn't see those guys really for a year. So it turned into the idea that I could just email it to them. And that's when I started making it longer again, because I was figuring, well, I'm not printing it out. So it's like you can pick and choose what you want. So we'll we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But I've it's it is fascinating for me. And it's sort of it prods me to go back and try to put in more and more and more. And then you find things and it, it'll be the, the fun, the fun thing is something will happen and media or will look up something and it's like, Oh, that's the sixth time it's happened in Royals history. And I will immediately say, okay, what are the other five? Because I want to go back and put those in there and be able to, so it's, it's fun. And then, you do it with records too, because this came up when the last couple of years when Jorge set the the club record, and well before that Moose, and then Jorge, and then Salvi tied it, is to go back and chart. Okay, who's held the Royals home run record? And it's really only now I'm I I can't remember that. I used to be able to recite them, and I can't get them on my head right now. But I mean, it goes from like was it was it Ed Kirkpatrick? I think held it first. I think because he had the most home runs in 69 and then it sort of grows. And then of course, Mayberry holds it this huge long stretch and then even a longer stretch Balboni holds it. Yeah. And now it's changed a much more times. It's, it's changed like three times in the last, however many years. And before that, it had only changed like four times since the beginning. So I found that kind of interesting. Yeah. It's neat to see like how current, players are making history now and you all preserve that too with I remember when Alex Gordon retired you had some of his jerseys on display and just making sure that you guys honor those careers even if they haven't been like fully inducted yet into the Hall of Fame they're still Royals legends even if they just retire or still playing like Salvi like Danny Duffy when he was here stuff stuff like that I always say history's made every day yeah. it's just that we don't always recognize it as history when we're living it right? yeah it's just what happened on Wednesday to us. But what happened on Wednesday back then, we consider history. So it's the history happens every day. We just don't always call it history because we're sort of living it in, in that particular moment. Yeah. I want to talk about the World Series trophies that are at the Hall of Fame. That's a big part of it. Um, you walk through and they're near the end. And I think that's impactful there because you can kind of see it kind of culminates into the World Series. And there's a nice video with the two trophies there. And there's uh, always a lot of smiles there and just making sure that people uh, remember where they were either in 85 or 2015 when the Royals won the World Series. So can you kind of talk about people's reactions to seeing the trophies and getting to take pictures next to those? I always say they're like perpetual smile machines. 
And so I, I was working with one of them the other day because we had an event in which in which it made sense to only take one of them. I will say this, whenever I take them somewhere now, if it's a Royals event, unless it's particular to one of them, if it's particular to one of them, then it sort of makes sense to bring one of them. But if it's just in general, I always try to take both of them because they both are the same thing. They're both all the people and the effort and everything that went in and in the first one is and the second one is they're they're the same thing so i always view them as i never want to disparage one or the other it's like because the 15 one is more recent than the 85 one that doesn't mean it's more important per se it's just they're they're just different and they were they were won and supported in winning by sort of different different groups of people so you you look at them and they're they are in some ways ornate pieces of metal and uh, that clearly have some sort of significance. I mean, anybody that would see them say, oh, those must mean something to somebody. So the significance that we place on them are all of our memories, all of our experiences. So if you were, if you went through the experience of 2015, when you see the trophy, I always say each, each individual person whoever they are, be they a player that was on that team or someone that was on staff here. So they were part of the, sort of the Royals family when that happened, or if they're a fan of the team, we all come at it with our own story. And every time we see that, we remember all the things that were important and happening in our experience through that. So whoever you were watching the World Series with or whatever the moment was and where you were when these things happened, it'll immediately come rushing back to you when you see the trophy. And that's because we're all imbuing into that object all those sorts of things. So what it represents is all of those collective memories and experiences. And that's what sort of makes them special. Otherwise, they would be ornate pieces, but the significance of it is what is what we bring to it, right? So each one of us, when we interact with them, so that's why I try to put them in a very open space where people can get as close to them as possible, because every single person has their own sort of, I know it sounds ridiculous, but everyone has their own relationship to it with, because they bring their own, their own accounts to it. That's what is fun about them for me is to watch people interact it and it's it can be intergenerational in the fact that the 85 one is long enough now i'm old enough that i have this sort of personal experience having lived through both of them but there's a whole slew of people that are royals fans that came after the 85 one and don't remember it from their personal experience but they they know about all the things that happened that led to it or their their entree into loving the royals was through somebody else who loved the royals who who did experience all that and has told them all the tales of it and so they even have sort of a, a connection to it in that way and i always i get somewhat emotional about it because i always talk about how after we won the world series in 2015 we did this long sort of trophy tour in which we literally got in vehicles and went all the way up into Nebraska and Iowa and Arkansas and Oklahoma and and uh, Kansas and Missouri, obviously, 
and covered a lot of ground. And I took the 15 World Series trophy to all of our minor league affiliates and uh, and all of that. But what was especially in this sort of Royals country, Royals territory in these states is like we would go to Grand Island, Nebraska, in the middle, a middle of Nebraska, and we were making appearance at like a shopping mall. And there would people would show up to see the World Series trophy. And then people, what would get you is people would bring pictures of people and they would say, Can I get my picture taken with the trophy with this picture of my dad or my grandmother or my aunt or whatever, who was a huge Royals fan. And, and sort of a lot of them would say, you know, the reason I'm a Royals fan is because of my aunt Sue or whatever. And she wasn't around to, to be able to go through this 15 thing. And I'd like to get my picture taken with her, with the trophy and it'll get to you because, and it goes back to what I was saying about they were bringing their own experiences to it. And when they would see the trophy, that's what it would mean to them. And that's what's special is because it means a lot to that. It's, I always, sports is the, what is it? It's the most important, least important thing we have, right? So it means a lot to a lot of people and it means a lot to a lot of people for good reasons. And it's, it's good that we, that we like it and, and put so much into it. But we also all, realize that it's not that important right as part of like health and and all these sorts of things it's like it's not it's not on that level of importance but it is one of these things that brings us together and is something that we can all share and it's baseball i i i'm biased of course but i think baseball has a special magic in in being able to do that and you see it in people and it's it does have this power and i know as as people get older and especially, uh, you know, kids and parents and it's like, and brother, brothers, it's like, it is one connect. It's, it's a clear connect. I have great relationship with my two brothers, but it's a, one of the things we talk about all the time still is what the Royals are doing or what the chiefs are doing. Or in our case, the, the, the Nelson boys talking about the university of Oklahoma football and stuff like those are the things that sort of still sort of bind us together. So it does have that magic. And for people that have strained relations with, with people that, that they love and, and things like that, it can, be the th- it can be the one thing that still can, mm-hmm. the, the tie that can still bind. You know, all these other things might be a strain on those, some of those relationships, but the one thing that, that might still tie those people together and make them, ha- you know, deal with each other and maybe work through some of those things is that they can they can all talk about sports and particular sports that they that they enjoy together and i think baseball has a a special magic in that way and i've certainly seen it with with the royals so it's 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 an important thing for sure that's what i love about sports so much is like how i grew to love it because of my dad and going to games with him and my brother and that's going to tie us together forever and then 2015 world series and then celebrating with 800,000 people at uh, Union Station at the parade and all of that. And then seeing like my grandma is now a Chiefs fan on a separate note because of Patrick Mahomes and getting to talk to her about that now and all of that is just really unique and familial. And that's really the special part about is the magical part about it, like you said. Um, I want to ask you about how the museum kind of educates children with the RSVP program. I think that's really unique and interesting. So what are some of the ways that the museum... Um, is specifically helping kids learn about baseball. 
So the RSVP program was a, a program that was originally, its original incarnations was called Royal Zoology. It was sort of built out of our tour department, which once the Royals Hall of Fame came about, it sort of reported to the director of the Royals Hall of Fame. At that time, it did anyway. So it was building out this idea of we would have school groups come out and it's like, what can we do that's a little bit, you know, tour of the ballpark is great, but what can we do that's a little bit more than that? And try to sort of tie baseball into some, you know, you would like to do it in sort of STEM science technology and all that sort of stuff. But it's like any any sort of uh, academic topic and try to sort of help them learn even when they don't realize that's necessarily what you're doing. And so it sort of grew from there. My teammate here that does a lot of work in the Hall of Fame, Jill Saib Shab, she she really branched that out and made it the RSVP program. Yeah. You know, it's it's really for we've done it for all the way up to high school kids, but it's really designed for elementary school kids. It's like like a like a sweet spot, especially in like the third to sixth grade. And it does. It sort of focuses on very specific things geography, math, science, English, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And, and each, there are different modules that teachers can choose. And it's usually that they'll have three, two or three courses that they go through. And usually those courses are about 20 minutes and they're, they're, they're interactive and they all sort of revolve around baseball somehow. And that's sort of how that program, and then it's tied to uh, tour of the ballpark. So it's a full sort of field trip experience. And the fact that you go through and you learn a little bit uh, using baseball as sort of the backdrop of that. And then you go on a tour of the ballpark. The The modules have all been tried to build to adhere to Kansas and Missouri standards for different grade levels. So teachers really buy in. It's really like really something that they can, they can, uh, they can use and it sort of fits in with what the what they're doing at any particular time with their students on uh, and we're trying to track what each one of those grade levels and teachers are doing in those topics and they love that with because it really fits and it's an easy it's a little bit of an easier sell to PTAs and PTOs and principals and things like that to say let's do this because not only is it a fun activity for the kids, but it does adhere to these standards and it fits within what we're doing. And it, it reinforces the lessons that, that we're, we're doing in school. So it's a good way to do it. So that's, that's sort of the genesis of it. And it's, we've had, although obviously the last two years have been a real, you know, challenge to it because kids, Kids can and can't and can't and can and can't. And we, we've sort of run the, the we've had kids in the in this year. We got back in a good rhythm and now we're sort of off the rhythm again. But I, I am hopeful that in the next couple of months we'll, we'll get back into it. But that goes to a broader perspective. So this this is especially true with since new ownership has come, we sort of came in with sort of more you know, at, at those sort of breaking points where you're coming in and new people are coming in and it gives you an opportunity to, to say, okay, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? Well, what are some of the things we would like to do, but haven't been able to do before all those sorts of things can go, sort of see new light. And, uh, one of the things was the reformulating some of the way our departments work 
And we sort of took different elements of what was our community efforts and put them under one umbrella called community impact, which now encompasses our community relations aspects, our Royals charities, uh, the Hall of Fame falls under that category. And one of the key elements being the Urban Youth Academy, which at one time was sort of a, a piece that was tied to the Royals, but it wasn't really part of the Royals. And now it's more integrated into the Royals. It is, a, it is definitely, it's a distinct part of the organization. And uh, there's a lot of education efforts that go on down there too. And so we're trying to sort of meld all those educational efforts uh, together, both at the UIA in that facility of ours, and then also here at the ballpark, which is our primary vehicle for that here at the ballpark is the RSVP. So we're, we're still working our way through those, but mm -hmm. trying to be very purposeful in that because that is a, it's a key mission inside the community impact department to be able to, to impact kids. And of course, we have an interest in them loving and playing baseball and softball. That's a, a real key element down at the UIA. We honestly believe that being involved in, in baseball and softball are good for kids in on so many levels and we want them to be involved and in, uh, all the educational aspects and and uh, just growth aspects of of being involved in that we think are important so it's, it's a concerted effort to do that inside of the framework of what we do at the ballpark in the hall of fame along with how kids are participating in those sorts of things outside in in the in our broader community you know we focus primarily on the kansas city area because that's where we can get our hands on the and uh and do it the most but also sort of not necessarily just in metro kansas city but but it's an important part of of who we think we are and what we what our mission and responsibility is for sure that's definitely a big part of the royals organization and i i think it's grown over time and impacting more youth. And that was something that's been eye-opening to me as I talk to people for the podcast is like how much of an emphasis there is on the curriculum itself and like adhering to the state standards. Because when you're a kid, you have no concept of that in any way, but like you're, you're learning stuff that is part of what the state wants you to know in the curriculum. And I think that's very neat that it's very purposeful um, in that way. It's to try to back up the teachers, right? The teachers are going through this and they, they're trying to move their kids through these different learning aspects in the and everything and it's try to try to be sort of a to use a, a baseball phrase to backstop them to bring support to them in what they're doing in their in their school efforts and just be on a sort of auxiliary and yeah supercharger for them so do you have a favorite artifact or favorite exhibit i'm sure you get asked this a lot but i'm, I'm curious if you have something that's maybe a little off the beaten path or out of left field to use a baseball phrase. Like what's, what's something that you enjoy talking about that's at, on display at the hall of fame? Well, some of them, obviously the world series trophies for the reasons that I explained earlier mm -hmm. are sort of the highlights of the, this is the purpose, you know, we don't do it often enough and we need to get back to it. It's like we are a baseball team and the prime mission is to win baseball games and win championships. And we're fully aware of that. And, there's a lot that goes with that, but obviously that's a key part. But one of my favorite stories is the Royals Baseball Academy. So I have a real affinity for the Royals Baseball Academy and the few artifacts that we have from that because the Royals Baseball Academy is a great story 
And it's this idea, Mr. K had this idea, he wanted to compete as quickly as possible. And, and, you know, this was the days before free agency and everything. It's like, how do we build a competitive team as quickly as possible? And really the only ways about going about acquiring players was the, the draft was, was in effect at the time. So you had the draft and you had trades and things like that. And that was really the only way about going. And, and he had this idea is like, what if we took people that were sort of good athletes and maybe baseball wasn't their primary sport, but they had all these athletic attributes that we could measure and send them to an intensified baseball school and teach them baseball. So sort of forward thinking sort of idea. And he was even more forward thinking than that in the sense of he wanted to do this baseball thing. But he also wanted them to to go to college because a lot of them would have been coming out of high school. And he was like, while they're doing this, I also want them to be going at least to some level of of higher education. And uh, the Royals Baseball Academy, which was in Sarasota, Florida, had Manatee uh, Community College, which was literally almost right across the street. And he wanted them to concurrently be taking classes at Manatee Community College and he had multiple courses that he would would have wanted them to take, but two in particular, he wanted them public speaking because he thought that would be important if they were to de- develop into professional baseball and major league baseball. And the other was finances and financial literacy. He thought that would be important for them as well, because he wanted them to be able to, if they were able to become uh, professional baseball players and, and some of them reached the major leagues, he wanted them to be able to, to be responsible for the finances and be able to build upon that once they got done with baseball, that they would have the ability to do something after baseball, which is a really, you know, seems simple and an idea, but it's like, it's sort of looking out for people's best interest. It's like, Hey, well, let's, let's use, this is the idea of it. Let's use baseball to better your life instead of, you know, use your life to better baseball. It's, you know, it's sort of reversing that around and using baseball as a tool instead of people as the tool for baseball. So he did that and it didn't last very long. And by the time they closed it down, nobody had reached the major leagues. But after they closed it down, there were several guys that would make it to the big leagues, including Frank White, who's the most famous graduate of the Royals Baseball Academy as a player, although there were about 15 guys that would reach the major leagues that were somehow attached to the Royals Baseball Academy. And even more than that, there were a lot of players that came through there that went on to become, and Dayton sort of speaks to this in a different fashion. He spoke to this a lot in 2020 about minor league players and about how minor league players that might clearly never make the major leagues is they're very, those players are very important and the the idea that a player is playing in in minor league baseball and is might not going to reach the big leagues is very important because that's the person that's going to go back and first of all that person if if that person has a good experience with baseball right you don't want them to have a bad experience with baseball you want them to have a good experience with baseball so They'll all the things that they can do, they'll either be an advocate for baseball because baseball was a great experience for them, or even more than that, they'll become somebody that'll, that'll be a, an instructor or a coach 
or will imbue other people with this love for baseball. So those people are important and you can't just, they're, they're not just roster spots and all this sort of thing. They're, they're human beings and, and they're important for, for baseball. And back to the Academy, there were a lot of guys that went through the Royals baseball Academy that did indeed become instructors at all levels. And it was an intensified instruction program. So they went with sort of these fundamental aspects of they, you know, went through, they did go to a baseball school. That's what it was. And they, they did focus on fundamentals and all that as cliche as that sounds. And so there were guys that became youth coaches, high school coaches, all the way to college coaches. Hal Baird, who was the head coach at Auburn University, head baseball coach at Auburn University for years and put out player like Frank Thomas, Bo, Greg Olson, a lot of big leaguers. He was a Royals baseball academy guy. There were several major league coaches that, and Ron Washington, of course, would go on and be a, a big league manager and win two pennants with the, with the Rangers. And he's a Royals baseball academy graduate. And if you talk to those guys, they'll talk about how fundamental the Royals baseball academy is to all the things that they, that they did after that. So it's, it was an important aspect of not only baseball for the Royals, it was an important aspect in, the, in these other ways. And it was sort of in some ways, although somewhat similar ideas, but not to the scale of the Royals Baseball Academy had sort of been around, but the idea of it still lives in every team has a baseball academy, primarily in Latin America. And uh, we have one in the Dominican. And a lot of the concepts that they have about intensified baseball instruction, but also other learning skills and life skills and those sorts of things, uh, nutrition even, and stuff like that, were things that they were doing at the Royals Baseball Academy years ago. So it's almost like this gift that the Royals organization, a very young organization at the time, sort of gave baseball and still exists in baseball. So I I think it, in that way, I think it's an important part of Royals history, though it was only this very, very short period of time. It really had this major impact. And, and even to the extent there are some aspects of it that you can see in the Urban Youth Academies, of which we have one, but the Urban Youth Academy in Los Angeles and places, other places around the country that have, that have really uh, tried to be helpful in the development of kids playing baseball, especially inner city kids. You know, it's, it's something that we've been trying to, to grapple with for a while. And there's been some good measures. There's, a, there's some kids that are going to be first round draft picks in this year's draft that are that would have been sort of what's considered under underprivileged uh, inner city more type kids that might not have played baseball, except for the fact that they were able to go through some of these youth academies and things that have been put up. And so there's some sort of seeds that are coming through those programs. And in those programs are, uh, there is a little bit of Royals Baseball Academy magic dust that's part of that whole thing too. So it's something that I think the the organization can be proud of. So that is one of the things. And there's a few artifacts up there that are that are from the academy itself. There's a windbreaker that was worn by Sid Thrift, who was the director of the Royals Baseball Academy, which is one of my favorites. And one of my favorite finds was there was a plaque. So there was a plaque that was uh, 
at the dedication of the Royals Baseball Academy way back in the day. And it was sort of a big event because Mr. K was there and the governor of Florida was there and the commissioner of baseball was there. And they had, there was this plaque and I always wanted to try to find this plaque and somehow somewhat surreptitiously, I was able to find it. It was still on the building in Sarasota and this, the building was about to be torn down for a, for a different project. And I finally found the right person who, cause I'd call down there and people would act like that. I was talking about some foreign country on a different planet. They had no idea what I was talking about, but I finally got a hold of one person that said, Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I know exactly where it is. So uh, that was one of my favorite finds forever is the, the plaque from the Royals Baseball Academy. And it's upstairs now. So I'm very proud of it. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing those stories. And I think that's one of my favorite parts too about um, the Royals Hall of Fame is seeing those older artifacts and then kind of tying it into what you're doing today at the Urban Youth Academy and what many teams are doing to find um, underrepresented uh, players to help teach them about baseball and life. I think that's, that's really neat, that connection. As we wrap up here, Kurt, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. I could talk to you all day and hear these stories, but I wanted to uh, wrap up by having you talk about where people can find the Royals Hall of Fame, both online and in person. All Royals information can go to royals.com. All that sort of stuff exists there. There is a royalshalloffame.com as well. So you can check out some stuff there some Royals history things that come through Royals Twitter. So Royals Twitter is always a good place to get some nuggets every now and then a lot of birthdays and a lot of on this date sort of stuff that comes through them. We haven't been doing tours as much. We're hoping to get back to it there. If uh, people can do tour, we, we try to do some tours when we can. So people can still sort of call in if they, especially if they have a group and we can make it fit in a schedule that makes safety and everything works we can do we can do tours of the ballpark which include the hall of fame we didn't open until june last year the hall of fame was closed at the beginning of the of last year but uh, hopefully in april we'll be able to be open almost positive we will thinking good thoughts and so when people come out to the ballpark please come by we try to uh update some exhibits here and there and keep things mm -hmm. fresh and have new stories. And, and the, uh, the, the Royals hall of fame theater, which I think is a key part of that experience. We haven't, we have not been able to use that the last couple of years because it's really a confined space and we did not want to put people in there for safety reasons the last, uh, last year, but hopefully once again, we'll be able to, uh, to get people in that space and hope we're looking forward to adding some new, uh, videos for that so that uh, so people can that can be part of their experience again so please when you're at the ballpark and please come by uh, when the season starts come by the the Royals Hall of Fame always remember that once the ballpark opens the Hall of Fame is open from the time the ballpark opens until the top of the eighth inning and it's free to every Royals fan with your ticket so please come by it is, uh, especially during the, the summer months, I, I always say it is the coolest place in the ballpark and we have air conditioning. Very true. So stop by if you're, if you're needing a little bit of a break and, uh, and take everything in and say hello. 
Yeah. Thank you, Kurt. This made me want to come to the K and experience some warmer weather and some baseball and I would love the Hall it. of Fame as well. So absolutely, um, there's a, a lot more to discuss too. Maybe we could have you back come in fall and talk about um, some other stories and, and playoffs and all of that. So um, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. Growing up as a passionate Royals fan, I became familiar with Ewan Kaufman at a young age. After all, he and his wife Muriel are immortalized with a statue in the outfield concourse at Kaufman Stadium. The Kaufman name is hallowed in Kansas City, still doing so much good for the local community in sports, the arts, community engagement, and scholarship programs. For this episode's overtime segment, I'll spotlight Mr. K, the visionary Royals owner who brought so much more than pro baseball to Kansas City. The Kaufman Foundation and Royals Hall of Fame websites provided much of this information. I'll link to their biographies of Mr. K in the show notes. Ewing Marion Kaufman was born September 21, 1916, near Garden City, Missouri, several dozen miles south of the KC Metro. He spent the first few years of his life on a farm before several setbacks forced the family to move to the city. I didn't know this about Mr. K until beginning my research, but at the age of 11, he was diagnosed with endocarditis, a heart condition which required a year of bed rest. What do you do when you're given a year of bed rest? You read. Surely these hundreds of books he read over that year had a strong impact on the rest of his fascinating life. After his parents divorced when he was 12, Mr. K earned the rank of Eagle Scout and later graduated from Westport High School in 1934. In the following years, Ewing gets his associate's degree in business and marries Marguerite, his first wife. World War II then happens. Mr. K serves as a signalman in the U.S. Navy. Following the war, Mr. Kaufman gets a job as a pharmaceutical salesman with Lincoln Laboratories in Illinois. Always up for a challenge, he becomes an excellent salesman, using his exceptional knowledge and rapport with others. However, he headed for new pastures in 1950. On June 1st of that year, he founded Marion Laboratories, using his middle name. He is incredibly entrepreneurial and built up a strong company from the ground up. Building a solid team is a trait Mr. K will use later than the Royals, and Marion is no different. He expects a lot from his employees, and the company takes off in the 50s and 60s. But he is also generous. Mr. K starts a profit-sharing program with his employees, and as the Kaufman Foundation website states, quote, Mr. K believes that showing appreciation is a powerful motivator for performance. He routinely seeks out associates and rewards them for a job well done, end quote. His life is not without tragedy, however. Marguerite suddenly passed away in 1960. A couple years later, Ewing meets Muriel, and love enters his life once again. They married in 1962 and are the founding couple of the Royals. Oh yeah, the Royals. That's what Kurt is so knowledgeable about, and likely what you're interested in hearing about. I just love the backstory and context of Mr. K's life before the Royals. So what happened was the Kansas City A's moved west to Oakland after the 1967 season, leaving the city without a Major League Baseball franchise. Mr. K changed that when he was approached by civic leaders and encouraged by Muriel to pursue MLB ownership. KC was granted an expansion franchise in January 1968. Obviously, by that point, Marion Laboratories had become extremely profitable and went public, giving Kaufman the necessary funds to own the Royals. The Royals were successful very quickly compared to other expansion teams, driven by Kaufman's entrepreneurial spirit and outside-the-box thinking. Think back to the Royals Academy that Kurt talked about. After playing their first four seasons in Municipal Stadium, Royal Stadium opens in 1973 alongside the Chiefs Arrowhead Stadium at the Truman Sports Complex. It was innovative for its time and was the only baseball-specific stadium built between 1962 and 1991. It remains incredibly beautiful today. Muriel was instrumental in the design and is said to have vouched for the fountains that make the stadium so unique. The Royals were one of the best teams in the American League throughout the 70s and 80s, winning the American League pennant in 1980 and winning the World Series over the Cardinals in 1985. During Ewing Kaufman's years as the team's owner, 
Royals fans filled the stadium and topped the magic 2 million season attendance mark seven seasons in a row, and 11 times in all. In those 25 seasons with Kaufman at the helm, the Royals post winning records 16 times. The team wins 51% of its regular season games and never finishes in last place. Mr. K and Muriel were incredibly philanthropic. His Kaufman Foundation had an innovative drug prevention program throughout the 80s, and his Project Choice program gifted college scholarships to students at his Westport High School. In the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to watch Mr. K's induction into the Royals Hall of Fame in May 1993. It's a great 13-minute watch. That was his last public appearance. Mr. K passed away a few months later in August 1993. While he was still living, Royal Stadium was renamed Kauffman Stadium in his honor. What an incredible life. You can find the Royals Hall of Fame online at royals.com or beyond the left field fence at Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City. In the show notes, you can find links to the museum's website plus more info on Mr. K. Thanks to Kurt for being such a great guest. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hallowed Grounds, the sports museum podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Hallowed Ground on your podcast app of choice so you don't miss our next one. Be sure to tell your friends about the pod. I really appreciate you spreading the word. Until next time, sports fans.